Welcome to the Thriller Fiction Podcast, your source for gripping and twisty stories in a serialized format. And now, here's your host, Jim Heskett. Holy crap, we're in the home stretch. Hi, my name is Jim Heskett, and you might recognize me from some podcasts such as this one you're listening to right now, or maybe you've read the Lane Parrish thrillers or the Micah Reed thrillers, or maybe you read the Whistleblower trilogy, which actually has four books in it, which doesn't make any sense at all unless you actually read them. Anyway, if you know me from any of those things, then you know that you are here on the Thriller Fiction Podcast to ingest some thriller fiction. I am going to feed it to you like a mama bird chewing it up and spinning it into your baby bird mouths. Gross. I can't believe I just said that. Anyway, today we've only got two episodes of the Micah Reed Chronological Edition left. And today we're going to be reading the Now timeline from Prison Runner. Prison Runner, if you remember, was formerly titled Catch and Release. It's the sixth published book in the Micah Reed series. And it is split into two concurrent timelines, a then timeline that occurs um, before Micah got sober, and then a now timeline that occurs after Micah got sober. So we are going to be reading the first chapter of the book, which is the first chapter of the now timeline. And then after that's over, I am going to give you a little behind the scenes commentary on it. So let's go ahead and do that. Now, here we go, starting right at this moment. My two opponents sit across from me, a grim triangle. On my left, there's Frank Mueller. He's the wise sage of the group. I'm not even exactly sure how old he is, but he's on the wrong side of 60. He thinks his dark-skinned midnight eyes can hide his poker face, but I can see right through him. Maybe he used to be a cop, but he's lost his touch. To my right is Lane Parrish. He's the wild card. Thirties, tall, muscular, exposed arms covered in tattoos. I can't read his face at all. He could hold the keys to the kingdom in his fingers and I would never know it. The tension in this room feels like a layer of soup woven through the air, the kind where the silence is louder than screams. Micah, Lane says, are you going to sit there all day? I look at the cards in my hand. Go fish. Lane sighs and reaches across the dining room table to draw. He rolls his eyes at the card as he slips it into the others in his hand. Not good news. I chuckle. You can wipe that grin off your face, Frank says. This game ain't over yet, kid. Lane stands. Either you mind if I grab a beer? That's not weird, is it? Frank and I share a look. Frank, my boss and AA sponsor, has been sober close to 30 years, about as long as I've been alive. He took his last drink before the internet was even a thing. Me, I'm about 19 months sober, uh, and being around alcohol doesn't bother me much. Not anything like it used to back in my fledgling days of recovery. I used to wallow in a constant state of panic over my conflicting desires to both drink and not drink. At three or four months sober, seeing someone pop the cap off a Budweiser would have given me the cold sweats. It's fine, Frank says, but he gives me a questioning look first. I shrug and wave my hand toward the kitchen, offering my permission. Shifting my leg under the table, my knee scrapes against an exposed screw jutting from the bottom, makes a little gash across my flesh. You got any duct tape? I yell at Lane, who has disappeared into the kitchen. Yeah, why? I'm going to fix your table so I can stop shredding my skin. 
Lane returns to the room with one fat tire and two Diet Cokes. He sets the non-alcoholic beverages in front of Frank and me. Sure, check my closet in the bedroom. It should be on the shelf. When I stand, there's a trickle of blood running down my knee. Maybe I shouldn't have worn shorts, but it's a brisk May day in Denver, the kind where the sun wants to bake you by noon. Either of you look at my cards while I'm gone, I say as I swing a pointed finger between the two of them, and you're off my Christmas card list. Frank chuckles. Don't make idle threats if you can't deliver. Feeling I've set the right tone, I leave the table and navigate through Lane's living room down a hallway. His bedroom is a mess, but it's understandable. He's on the road a lot. I'm a rather sedentary person. Correction, I would love to be a rather sedentary person. Given what I do for a living and the fact that the name Micah Reed on my driver's license isn't really who I am, it's not often an option for me. Trouble seems to follow me wherever I go like a piece of toilet paper stuck to my shoe. Sometimes it doesn't follow when it leaps out in front of me, waving its arms. When I open Lane's closet, my mouth drops. Hanging on the inside door of his closet is a grate with weapons suspended from hooks. Pistols, shotguns, magazines of ammo, boxes of shells. There's enough to outfit a small army hanging there, maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars worth of gear. An AR-15 catches my eye in particular. It's outfitted with a laser sight and a custom grip. I squint to study the biometric pad on the grip, something I've never seen on this weapon before. Custom made, probably. Thumbprint identifier, I whisper. What the hell is that all about? What kind of Jason Bourne stuff are you doing on your weekends, Lane? I leave the bedroom and wander back into the dining room. I I know Lane was once in the military, and he has a certain distrust of the government, but I didn't picture him as one of those tinfoil hat militia types. Then again, I've only known him for a few months. We don't exactly talk politics when we get together. Usually we meet at the boxing gym where we bond by punching each other in the face repeatedly. Maybe I don't know him at all. You not find the duct tape? Lane says, eyeing me as I stare at him. Uh, no. Lane frowns and rises from his chair. He disappears into the kitchen for a few seconds, then he comes back with a roll in his hand. But he lifts his arm, pointing past me. Whoa, check it out. They've got video now. I turn to find him gawking at the television in the living room. On screen, there's a firefight outside a house in the suburbs. Smoke. Gun blasts like yellow sparks of popping firecrackers. The view is from above a helicopter hovering around. I can see the shadow of the blades on the neighborhood lawns below. The three of us leave the dining room and walk into the adjoining living room. When Lane, while Lane fumbles with the remote control, I read through the text scrawl at the bottom of the screen. Standoff in Dallas with police ends with six dead. Three police officers, three house occupants. Suspected mafia members the cause of the shootout. One man has fled, is wanted for questioning. Lane hits the unmute button on the remote and the sound of televised gunfire cracks through the room. Local police believe that members of a suspected organized crime family visited this Dallas home in an attempt to kill Elias Sellers, an accountant who worked at the law firm S&T. My heart thumps in my chest. Did I hear that name right? The camera angle switches to someone's jerky cell phone footage at the street level. Three police cars on one side of the street barricading the way out. Cops huddled behind their cars, popping up to take shots. A group of men taking cover behind an SUV returns sporadic fire. Micah? Frank says. You okay? You look like you're having a panic attack. Fine, I say. This is live? No, Lane says. Notification about this popped up on my phone over an hour ago. It happened this morning. 
The camera overhead resumes showing the shootout from the helicopter's perspective. The men behind the SUV flee, but the cops are still under fire from somewhere else. The running men leap over a fence and disappear through the backyard of a nearby house across the street. Within seconds, they're out of view. The helicopter swings around to the backyard of a different house. The door opens and a man with blonde hair sprints across the grass. The copter's camera zooms in on him as he runs. The man looks up and raises a hand to shield himself from the blaring sun. The camera frame freezes. It zooms in closer, highlighting the face of the running man. My mouth dries up like the Badlands. I can't swallow. The image you're seeing now is Elias Sellers, the news reporter says. The man's staying at this rented house. Authorities believe the armed men were there specifically to kill him. As you can see, Sellers fled from the back of the house and was last seen somewhere in a neighborhood in Irving, Texas. He's been missing since then. The police want to speak with him regarding the incident, but have been unable to locate him. Oh my god, I say. That's fish. Frank puts his hands on his hips. What are you talking about? You know that running guy? He's not considered dangerous, the reporter says, but if you encounter him, please contact the Irving Police Department via their website. It's critical they find Mr. Sellers as soon as possible. Yes, I say. I know him. I never thought I would see that blonde-haired, blue-eyed face again. Never thought I would need to. Micah, Lane says, what's this all about? How do you know this guy? My lip trembles. Frank, I'm going to need to take a week or two off work. You need to start talking sense, Frank says. I point at the TV. I need to go to Texas. What are you going to do, Lane says. That guy the mob is trying to kill? That's Fish. He was my cellmate. And there we have the first chapter of the now timeline of Prison Runner. If you remember from when we read the, um, the first chapter of the then timeline like five weeks ago, um, you already know who Fish is because in the old timeline we already met him. But if you are reading this book live, you don't know who this Fish guy is. You don't meet him until the next chapter when it flashes back. Do you see how those two timelines interact like that? Yeah, that's how it works. It's clever. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Just kidding. Um... So this is Prison Runner, formerly titled Catch and Release. And I think in this chapter, we see a couple different phases. There's uh, like the first half of it is kind of jokey. Um, and then is as Micah notices the news report in the second half of the chapter uh, changes to a more dramatic tone. I think at the beginning, we see some of that trademark Micah Reed humor while he's playing Go Fish with Lane and Frank. And then... There's sort of a transition scene where Micah goes to find the duct tape, but he sees that Blaine has this um, this uh, arsenal in his closet. And at this point, um, because this is only the the third book Lane has appeared in, if you were reading them in publication order, we don't really know much about Lane's backstory yet. I mean, if you've read the Lane Parish books, now you know quite a lot more about him. But much like Micah, Lane's backstory uh, was only revealed in drips and drabs when I introduced the character because I knew that in some ways Lane parallels Micah and that he is not exactly who he claims to be. And in other ways, Lane is very different from Micah. You know, Lane is kind of more of the gung-ho action hero, um, whereas Micah is more of the everyman who's caught up in a situation bigger than himself. 
But so we get to see Lane's house and Lane's arsenal in his closet, and um, we get to see his duct tape and that he has a, a screw underneath his table that doesn't, that's cutting Micah's leg. So, but there's a lot of interesting things going on here. And so the story sends Micah on an adventure down to Dallas. So this is one of the rare Micah Reed books that does not take place in either Oklahoma or um, Colorado. Because uh, I, I, you know, Mike is not exactly like an international man of mystery where every book takes place in a different locality. But I did want to make sure that they were not all set just in Denver. And um, Prison Runner is yet another example of a book of Micah trying to deal with his past while also move forward. He's 19 months sober now, and he's trying to put the past behind him and become his own man, but. When this guy Fish, or Elias as he's known, pops up, Micah can't help but go back and work with him because Micah did spend 11 months in prison and it was a part of his life. And while he was in prison, he developed this relationship with his cellmate, this intense friendship and a bond with this guy Elias. And so Micah now, for reasons that he doesn't know yet, this guy Elias is being targeted by the mafia. And so Micah feels this urge to go help him. And that's, you know, part of you should be able to see part of Micah's progression as a human being because maybe a couple years before when Micah was drinking, he would have been, he wouldn't have, you know, dropped what he was doing to rush off to Texas to help a friend of his. But now Micah is more sober. He's a little older. He's more grown up. He's starting to see that what he does affects things in the world and that he has a responsibility to help his friend or at least he believes he has a responsibility to help his friend. And I think that I have pretty much covered what I wanted to say about this. Next week is going to be the final Micah Reed chronological edition chapter, and that will be Shot Caller. And I can't wait to see you then. Take care. That's it for this episode of the Thriller Fiction Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and visit jimheskett.com for more info and free thriller books.